when we learned that people's problem is about finding documents, right away, we researched what was out there and we learned that everyone built a search box. Yeah. Most of the products in the market were a search box. Like, oh, how fast can we build a search box? We actually built a search box that searched G Suite, Dropbox, OneDrive, and I think Box in real time after you typed in a keyword once you authenticated those services. And we built that in five days. How did you And do we that? shipped it. We just put a lot of constraints on it. Because most people would assume we need to find all their documents. No, yeah. we just need to find enough of them. Hi, I'm Rand Fishkin from Oz, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy from ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Welcome back to the Productive Insights Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights Membership Program, which helps you to grow your business profitably and fast using online and offline strategies that actually work. Head over to getmetodone.com to find out more about how to get started today. Today's guest is Hitain Shah, and he's co-founded Crazy Egg, Kissmetrics, and Quicksprout, and he is no stranger to business growth. In fact, he's an expert in growth hacking. He also specializes in software as a service, which we spoke about in episode 44 when we had him on as a guest back then on this Productive Insights podcast. Today, we're here to talk about a very important article that he wrote called My Billion Dollar Mistake, which I was very moved by personally. I'm really looking forward to digging a bit deeper into some of the nuances of that article. He then shared the article on his blog called producthabits.com, which actually yep. sounds a little bit similar to productiveinsights.com, so I feel pretty chuffed about that. So, Hithen, would you like to just kick off and tell us a little bit about this billion-dollar mistake you made and give us a bit of context around the article for those who may not have read it? Yeah, I mean, I really believe in reviewing the things that happen in your life and being honest about them. So an objective, truthful, factual take on what happened, including anything that you did or didn't do to contribute to the situation and really focusing in on that. So one of my companies, Kissmetrics, where we had raised a whole bunch of venture capital, I made my billion dollar mistake, basically. It was an analytics company. At our third product attempt, we really figured out something about the market that was really impactful in terms of analytics, because it was we were in the web analytics market, and we were dealing with people using Google Analytics for free yeah. and getting a lot of value from it. So we really needed to figure out what was wrong with the existing product, if anything, and then what could we do about it. And the simple truth that we figured out was that Google Analytics will only tell you what's happening on your website. It yep. won't tell you who's actually doing it. And that's the sort of kernel of Kissmetrics. There was a bunch of other things we figured out that were related to that, such as making it so that it's easy to track analytics events and see what happens in real time so you can debug the install you have, giving a very simple API that lets you pass in usernames of mm -hmm. the people who are visiting your website, uh, signing up, basically. Yeah. and any events that happen after that. So what we learned is that people really wanted to be able to tie data to individual people and who are actually their users. This insight and the product we built, which was first built in 30 days, because we had gotten tired of building uh, products and spending months on them, which we had done at the business prior. And so we built it after these learnings of exactly what problems people have. Yeah. And we ended up, in my estimation, even just 
objectively about three years ahead in the category. That's kind of where things started taking another turn. And this was what I would call a turn for the worst. And basically what ended up happening is I was really not sure of what to do next now that we had figured this out. It wasn't actually exactly clear on how to evolve the product, evolve the business, grow the sales team or whatever it was. And so I was almost having an idea every day. And I was spending time with the team talking to them about these ideas, whether it's giving them a call, walking by their desk or what have you. And we were a remote team primarily at the time. So it was a lot of not necessarily walking by desk, but that's a good analogy. But really what we ended up calling it was something that this whole phenomenon was something that after I wrote this, it really resonated with a lot of people. Some people actually read this whole blog post out in front of their all hands meeting. At least two companies told me they did that. And basically it was a memo written by a team member. And what he said about the memo was, hopefully I can help everyone understand where those things that might seem like left field are coming from. And this was basically him explaining competing forces I was dealing with as a founder CEO. Existing customers, sales, ourselves, our own internal needs and business, board of directors, future investors, and the competition. And he listed out even a few other things. And he basically coined it a heat and bomb. And he basically said that that's what I was doing. (laughs) Yeah. We basically figured out that was happening inside the company was I was doing this and it was distracting everybody. And they didn't know how to have a very focused view on what what they should be doing in their jobs. Regardless of who it was, I would be doing this to them. That must have hurt Hithin. You you must have really felt that. Well, it hurt when I realized what I was doing. When I didn't realize what I was doing, I thought I was just doing the right thing. But, but uh, this just one thing I wanted to say here, team. one thing I would just yeah. say here is I admire the courage with which you faced up to that and you actually went out there and said, hey, you know what? I messed up. There's one other person that comes to mind that is this honest, at least from my interactions, and that's Rand Fishkin, who's been on this podcast yeah. three times. He's so honest. So kudos to you for doing that. I really respect that. Thank you. Yeah, big fan of Rand and we're friends. The thing I really look to do in these situations is figure out what I did wrong and what I could have done differently yep. and use that to never make those mistakes again. Right. And not in a way like someone else did it to me. So I would, I would say that if I said it was wrong to raise money, that would be not something that I would ever really say. Mm-hmm. I would say that it was my decision to raise the money yes. and I could have made a better decision. You're taking ownership. You're not feeling like the victim. You're positioning yourself as somebody who can learn from it and grow from it. That's what we all do. I mean, whether it's when we're kids and learning to walk, we fall down and we get up again. Yep. Even if we fell down and we got up again and no one was watching, we would still get up, right? If that experience happened, we would get up. So I really appreciate your comments. A lot of people said that was transparent, took courage to, you know, and honesty and all that. And I have to share this because it's really fascinating to me that that was the sort of thing that people said and responded. Part of the reason is I think we're not able to appear genuine and be genuine, not just appear, because like you don't know if I'm genuine. Yeah. I wrote it. You yeah. don't really know. It's just my words. And the words were yeah. great, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Other people said that. You're saying that. But the appearance of, of being genuine requires a level of honesty with yourself. Yes. And I could still call it appearance because nobody knows if I'm being genuine. Yeah. Right. But my words ring true that way. And, and I would just want to be honest about that, too. I am being genuine, but it's this appearance that I'm talking about. And the reason I'm talking about that is because you can feel it in the words. You can feel it in the detail. 
Yes. And you can show this to anyone that was there and be like, yeah, he did this. Yeah. And it's very factual. If yeah. that gentleman who was leading product and engineering did not write that memo, yeah. this story would be a lot different. Yes. And that was direct words from his memo. It was a 1300 word memo that he wrote to the company after having discussions with me. Thankfully, he still works with me. So <laughs> I, didn't totally, I didn't totally blow it. One of the reasons is because of this memo. Look, he's willing to take a situation that he sees and observe it and then basically just put it on display for everybody. And, you know, some one person did message me out of the hundreds that I heard from that said, hey, that's like subordination. Hmm. And what's interesting to me is, yeah, one perspective is definitely that's subordination, yeah. right? I won't say that, but my, my reaction for a lot of reasons, I know where this person's coming from. Yeah. I don't really feel like I really believe in servant leadership and concepts like that. And yeah. I was not doing that here. Yeah. Right. So it really resonated on that level. So I actually feel like extremely grateful that he did this because I have completely changed my ways as a result. Well, he something else that I found interesting that you just said was fortunately he still works with me as in you feel fortunate that he works with you. But I can think of a lot of founders and CEOs that would have been saying, well, he's lucky he still has a job with me. Yeah, I mean, I never really crystallized this almost rule for life for myself. Yeah, It's this compassion, right? And, and I think compassion goes two ways. One, it goes for yourself and you should have compassion for others. That's what they say. Yeah. So to me, like I empathize with, him. His name is Steve. I empathize with him because he was a leader in the company. He was a manager. He managed one of the larger teams in the company. And he was wondering what was going on because people were asking him what was going on. Yeah. And he's empathizing with them and trying to figure all this out and be like, what's going on? What's this craziness? Yeah. yeah. And he had to hear about it. And then he literally, we were talking and I was explaining myself around some of the stuff and he really, it really clicked for him. So he felt like doing this. I didn't know he was going to write this. And so any leader who takes an act like this from a team member personally, I think they should just step back and look at the experience and just think about what happened before they say anything or do anything or respond. Yep. And if they already respond, you know, that's fine. And really think about if I were to take this at face value, if I were to not take this personally, what would this experience feel like? Yes. And that's a great question. And it's, it's all about experience and it's all about understanding the difference in experience between what you're actually experiencing versus literally the opposite experience. And a lot of people react to other people and they trigger us and make us think about things we don't want to think about. We don't want to face about ourselves. Yes. I didn't want to face the fact that I was distracting the team. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have stopped. A lot of this comes back to a practice called mindfulness, which I've been practicing on and off for quite a few years. And in episode 145, Amy Porterfield and I had a very open conversation about our anxieties about being on video and how we use mindfulness to, or how I use mindfulness. And we just talked about some of our various techniques on how to face our fears and move past them rather than be reactive and allow them to victimize us. So that was a useful episode. Rand Fishkin also shared some very honest truths on episode 159, where he talked about his book, Lost and Founder, and the most recent evolutions in his journey as the founder of Moz. Now, uh, Kissmetrics was a business that you started with Neil Patel, is that right? That's right, my brother-in-law. Yeah. yeah, so that's what I thought. I thought you were brothers-in-law. Neil was the very first guest on this podcast. It was an episode one, so that's pretty cool. I noticed Amazing. That he's, 
I noticed that he's actually working on some fantastic software called Ubersuggest. I was just playing with it this morning and it's pretty awesome and it's free. <laughs> okay, so I want to just dig into one particular statement that you had in your article that really touched me. You said, we had all the right inputs. We had the right intention. What we didn't have was a process to prioritize what we worked on and why. Can you share a bit more about this with us, Hithen, and give us a bit more context in terms of what was happening in the business at the time and how you came to this realization? Yeah, I mean, we iterated our way into the initial success we had. And it was success, objectively, when you look at the industry where it was and how much we changed it by the time we came along and did the things we did. And that's what people said. Our customers said that. So I think that's the biggest proof. So when I think about this, I try to think about, okay, what did we get right? And most of the things I do now at Product Habits to tell people how to build product, successful product development, has to do with learnings even from back then that are at the core. There are so many things we got right in that initial launchable version of Kissmetrics that I'm, all I'm looking to do is replicate what caused that. And I know that sounds weird because you can't really replicate it, but at the end of the day, we were very diligent about learning what problems people had, finding the most important ones. They were technical ones and ones related to user interface. Found those, solved them in the best way we possibly could, built it out really fast, and then shipped product. And what we didn't do is create a repeatable process to continue to do that. And one way I've learned to do that is by working with my new co-founder, Marie, who writes the Product Habits newsletters with me. And we went through that process to actually discover the opportunity I'm working on right now called FYI. And okay. You can see it at usefyi.com. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm mentioning that is it is a new category. We're calling it a document organization service. Okay. And it's based on countless now, probably in the range of hundreds of interviews and thousands of data points from customers and actual users of our product as well as other products to understand the number one challenge people have with documents. Okay. And the number one challenge they have is finding documents across all the apps that they use. Now, we spent about 15 months at Kissmetrics before we spent the about three months and 30 days of that was actually the build time for the actual product before we spent the three months to actually figure out and nail the value prop and the problems and all that that we had. At FYI, when we learned that people's problem is about finding documents, right away we researched what was out there and we learned that everyone built a search box. Most of the products in the market were a search box. Like, oh, how fast can we build a search box? We actually built a search box that searched G Suite, Dropbox, OneDrive, and I think Box in real time after you typed in a keyword once you authenticated those services. And we built that in five days. How did you and do that? And we shipped it. We just put a lot of constraints on it because most people would assume we need to find all their documents. Yeah. No, we just need to find enough of them uh, right. to give them a search box they could use and figure out what the problems were and build an interface that showed a uh, search results. So minimum and viable so, product, which then you were going to iterate yeah, on. No, which we didn't know if we were going to iterate on. That's where it gets really interesting. Right. These, these minimum viable products are not necessarily meant to be iterated on. Right. And I think okay. that's the that's fallacy. They're meant to learn from. And what we wanted to learn is why those other products failed. And we wanted to learn that as fast as possible. So this five-day MVP, what we learned is that people don't want to use a search box to find their documents. Oh, that's interesting. So 
Right. And that's why we call it a document organization service now. That's the category we've created and so that we're wait, in. You discovered that you were trying to solve the wrong problem. People weren't interested in a search box. They were interested in what? Document organization? No. We discovered that the right way to solve the problem is not a search box. People still want to find their documents. Yeah. But how so it's not the wrong problem. It? It's, it's not the wrong problem. Okay. It's the wrong solution. So the problem is still prevalent and the number one challenge right. people have. So what we did is we actually went back, looked at, did more research and looked at all of our research. And what we discovered is there are behaviors that people use when they find documents. And all we needed to do, which wasn't easy, is map to those behaviors in our interface. Okay. And so our interface on the left side shows you all of the apps that you've connected. You can click on one and see all the latest documents in those apps without leaving FYI. And then in the middle, you get an activity feed of all the recent activity of what's been happening, commenting, sharing, editing that's been happening across all the, all the documents, uh, all the document apps you use, so all the documents that you have. So that shows you recency. So people were looking at recency and things that were basically edited recent, recently to find their documents. And on the right, we have a pane that shows a sidebar that shows all the different people you collaborate with, sorted by the people you collaborate with the most. And when you click on them, you can see everything that you have shared with them together, like yeah. things you both have access to, as well as you can filter it and see things that they've created only. Okay. And so all of those things I just mentioned are how people are using our product to find documents. So our tagline is actually find your documents in three clicks or less. Wow. So what has the, the response been so far? It's been great. We built a single player product and we did that on purpose. It's been launched for a little over a year and we, are, we have now been, for the last few months, building out what we call FYI for Teams. And that's really a product that we believe teams can use to find their documents in three clicks or less. Because right now, you don't need to bring your team in in order to get value from the product. In the future, the way we're going to iterate is that the product will get more valuable as you bring more team members in. So this is a software as a service product? Software as a service. We have a Chrome extension that takes over your new tab to show you this interface so you can find, them right, find those docs right when you need them. We have a desktop app that helps you basically, we even let you find documents in your browser from your desktop. And is and it then when quite you click affordable? Them, they open. Yeah, it, it's a, there's a free plan and there's paid plans. The paid plans are just there so that we can see how people upgrade and all that. But right now we're working on the team features, which is really when the paid plans really start kicking in. So the reason I mentioned that is I took the lessons we learned from Kissmetrics about building really fast, solving the right problem, and iterating until you find the right way to solve the problem which are all things I learned from back then. And this was now 10 years ago. Wow. And most importantly, not getting distracted by either shiny objects or any new ideas that are irrelevant to today's execution. And that is tough, man. So let's talk about that for a second. There's, there's two or three points I want to touch on that you raised. One is data-driven decisions and speed of innovation and taking products to market. Now, just to confirm, you and Neil don't own Kissmetrics anymore. Is that correct? You've no, no, we haven't had any involvement in a number of years. Yeah. Okay. But you still have some excellent lessons you've learned from that. So I remember, in fact, when I spoke to Neil in episode one, I'm pretty sure he said that both you and him tend to make decisions based on data. What sort of data have you used? Can you give us some sort of example on how you use data in use FYI to drive your decisions around what to do next with the product and how data is driving your decisions in that business now? Absolutely. So we think of it as data informed, which is something that comes from Facebook. And it's not that the data drives the decisions, it's that the data informs the decision making. What's the difference between informing the and The difference driving? is that 
Yeah, the difference between informing and driving is that a lot of people can look at data and say, oh, this is not working, right. and then they'll stop working on it. We will look at the data and say, this is not working, but it's really important, yes. so we will keep going until it works. And the data is just informing our decision-making. It's not driving it. Gotcha. Uh, that's the simplistic sort of way to think about it, and it's about accurate enough. And so what we think about when we build product now is what I call step one. Mm -hmm. And really, like when you think about any product initiative, there's one thing people need to do that sort of kicks off the process. So in FYI, right now, you cannot share your documents from FYI. Mm -hmm. And we have a whole different paradigm on how we think about that that's in our heads. And so what we built was we built a button that's a plus button that shows up on any of the items when you hover over them, any of your documents when you hover over them. And we made it so people could click on the button and then we would just pop up a chat message that asked them what they expected to happen. Okay. Because that's the step, that's, believe it or not, that's step one for what we're going to do for FYI for Teams. Right. And that's it. Like It's that, that simple in terms of how I think about being data informed because if we can focus on step one and make sure that people are doing step one, then we'll basically be able to know whether that idea, that concept, that feature has legs or not and what to do about it. Right. So this touches on something very important that I've discovered on my journey, on my membership program, which I launched a few months ago. And that is rather than trying to scale using something like, say, the ask method, nothing against the ask method, like a survey based technique. What I found was really useful was just getting on a face-to-face -face call with my potential member, the person signing up to get my help growing their business and talk to them and get the qualitative data. It's not scalable, but it has enabled me to create some really valuable flagship content within my website and within my membership program that helps people get their business growth process kickstarted. So the point I'm trying to make is that scalability isn't necessarily the best thing to do up front, which it sounds like what you're doing as well. You're just putting the question out there and seeing what comes back. You're not trying to scale the process of discovery yet. Yeah, I, I do both. Okay. I do a lot of customer interviews. I do a lot of surveys, very similar to ask method where it's qualitative, but we ask more than one qualitative question. And then we also do the interviews as you suggested to get really contextual and understand what people think. So I look at all these things in a very simplistic way, which is they are increasing our ability to make data-informed decisions. Right, okay. So I'll take all the inputs I can. In your business, that input you're talking about is really valuable because mm -hmm. it's a human that needs to change their behavior, yes. and that's what your product should do for them. In our case, we're not really necessarily trying to change behavior. We're trying to figure out behavior, learn the behavior, gotcha. and there's many different ways to do that, and also learn pain. And again, many different ways to do that. So it really boils down to how do you think about your business and what you need to learn right now versus what's important later. So surveys at some scale might be important to you. Yes. But today, yeah, that one-on-one -on -one with 10 people one-on-one, -on -one, you'll learn more than you can with 10 people filling out a survey. Absolutely. I would argue for my purposes, potentially more than 100 people filling out a survey. So the next question I have is you mentioned in your article that the key to driving growth on product is to create product processes that produce repeatable wins that go on for years, if not decades. I thought that was very profound. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So when you think about how businesses work and what really scales is the idea that something you figure out from an innovation standpoint is so good that 
it lasts a long time right. with or without you. Right. So you're just trying to capture that and keep as much of the value and attention on your business around that innovation to be just quite frank, because that's what keeps you competitive. And so this is what I meant by like, we could have figured some key things out in the market, but if we didn't hold on to what we figured out, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Everyone else got the benefit. And this is this was the billion dollar mistake. Other companies have raised in, in total like three or four hundred million dollars in the space, doing essentially some version of what we started doing. Right. We only ended up raising about seventeen million before I think the company was sold, shut down, whatever whatever happened to it. I don't even know the details because I haven't been involved in a long time. Yeah. And so I would say that like that's really the key to what I meant. So if you think about even Apple, all the innovations that they've created with the iPhone have been adopted by the whole market. Yes. If you think about their computers, same things happen. Yes. So many computers look exactly the same as this MacBook that I'm yes. working on that's silver or space gray or whatever. I think this one's silver, space gray. I don't even yeah. know. Let me just check. Yeah, it's like space yeah. gray or something. Who knows? And and they look like this. I mean, I look at some commercials for like some of the Dells and things like that. Or I'm like, really? Like Dell was iconic yeah. at the time. And now everything looks samesies, you know, yeah. like Apple. And it's it's blowing my mind, yeah. frankly, at how pervasive one company's innovation can become in, yeah. a, in, a, in a market. I saw a non-Apple phone in a store the other day and it had that wedge or whatever they call it, that, the that thing. They the call the it notch, a notch, yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. like, seriously? I mean, why? why would you copy the notch? I mean, really, come on. But that is the degree to which the market just mimics what works. I guess that's hardwired into our DNA. I guess that's how we survived as a species, you know, when we were evolving in, in the Stone Age. But... I got to agree. I mean, Apple seems to have either lost their way or made decisions about moving in a different direction. They seem to be headed more towards media. Maybe they've thrown in the towel on hardware. That's how it looks to me. And they seem to be doing infrastructure plays around, you know, the payment systems and healthcare systems and all that sort of jazz. But they're also very smartly trying to leverage their hardware that is now ubiquitous, like the watch, for example, that can potentially take ECGs. Admittedly, not great quality ECGs yet, but Presumably, you know, that will evolve over time. So Apple, I think, still has a few cards up their sleeve. Apple did come up with something exceptional when they reinvented their products. I don't know if you know of this, Hithin, but I'm a bit of a Steve Jobs fan, uh, fascinated by how his thinking evolved. And I've read quite a lot about him. And he was actually quite obsessed with a guy called Edwin Land who was the guy who created the Polaroid. And interesting that, interestingly, their lives followed a very similar path. Both of them always thought about, how can I create something that is 10 levels beyond the market? I remember Guy Kawasaki talking about this in one of his talks. So I recently spoke at an event called Digital Marketer Down Under, where I was honored to share the stage with Ryan Dice and Ezra Firestone and all these people. And I was speaking on podcasting. So I asked myself a similar question. What can I do that is going to make this talk remembered for years to come. And what came up for me was, I need to give people something that is actionable, that will help them to kick off their podcast in the session there and then. So in addition to the slides that I presented to them, I created a two page checklist. It was 11 step podcast loan checklist. And on the flip side of it was the first four steps where you named your podcast, you know, we have certain strategies to come up with that. And people loved it. And Marcus Murphy from Digital Marketer saw it and he said, I have never seen anything like this before. I want to show it to Ryan Dice. By asking the question, what can I do that will make this product something that people remember for years to come is a very powerful question. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. 
And do you ask some version of that question of yourself? I'm looking to find timeless problems. Okay. And I, I focus on that. I focus on finding timeless problems. So, you know, Jeff Bezos calls it focus on things that don't change. Right. Right. People, people are always going to want things better, faster, cheaper. Right. So Amazon focuses on that. Gotcha. So I think the response I have to what you're saying is this sort of reframing of is the problem you're solving timeless? And, mm -hmm. and how timeless is that problem? So, so RP, and it's not, it's about like, in your case, like, are people always going to want to create an audience around this medium that you're helping them with? I don't know. And you could say the answer is yes. I mean, you could say the answer is yes. Yeah. I mean, th th <laughs> we're already in a world where we're talking to each other basically asynchronously. That's right, really right. what a podcast is. I see what right? you mean. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's well, a communication it's, form. It's largely one way though. It's asynchronous, yes, but it's not a two-way conversation usually. People don't tend to respond. But you know what? It may evolve. And and I, I hear you. I, I mean, asynchronous communication is really becoming a big thing. People don't answer phones anymore. They'd rather let it go to voicemail and respond by SMS. So I hear you. Yeah, it's it's like, it's like you know, you could say podcasts are one to many. I agree with you, but it's still some form of asynchronous conversation. And so my point is like, you're, you're communicating with people through a podcast. You're in their ears. It's very intimate. Yes. You know, uh, maybe you're watching a video like some people are, but most people are probably going to watch this without or actually listen to this without watching it, yeah. right? Putting it in their ears and doing it at the gym on their commute or on the weekend when they're just trying to relax and want to hear you and I talk about product, yeah. right? And so when I think about it like that, it's like timeless problems are what you should be trying to identify and then building solutions to these timeless problems so you don't get basically out-innovated. And that also mm -hmm. requires you to know we need to figure out constantly what the right problems are to solve and how to focus on the right things in the business. Okay. Speaking of the right problems and focusing on the right things in a business, typically how many projects do you work on at any given time? I don't have a number. Okay. Do you I don't really have a number. Not one though. <laughs> I don't I, I don't have a good answer. I think it has a lot to do with what gives you energy, how you think about leverage and um, spending your efforts, like what you want to spend them on and what gets you really excited. And so it's all very individual. Some people really, really, really need to focus on one thing. Yeah. And that's the way that they maximize their time, energy, life. For me, that's not generally the case. Interesting response. It's not what I expected, but that's great. I like, I like your honesty. You don't have an answer for it. Okay, so I'm going to just quickly wrap things up and then we'll talk about action steps and then we'll talk a bit more about product habits and hopefully use FYI as well. So... The importance of being honest and not seeing yourself necessarily as a victim of a situation, but to ask yourself the very powerful question, which is, if I wasn't to take this situation personally, how would I respond? I touched on concepts like mindfulness, which I talked about in episode 145 with Amy Porterfield. You talked about some very interesting stuff around solving problems that are here to stay for a long time. People will always want things faster, cheaper, better. Focus on data and be data informed rather than data driven. The subtle difference is that data driven tends to drive you towards a yes or a no decision, whereas data informed decisions say, well, okay, this data is telling us that this is not working, but that doesn't mean we, it's a no. It means we need to figure it out until we can get it to work. Is there anything else you would like to add? I think the most important thing in life is to be honest with yourself. Beautiful. That's all I can add. If you need help doing that, let me know. <laughs>
<laughs> I will. And I'm sure our audience will as well. If you need help getting honest with yourself, you must reach out to Hithain Shah at producthabits.com. Now, Hithain, how do people get in touch with you? How do they find out more about usefyi.com? We'll obviously link to all this in our show notes. Can you give us some more information about how people can get in touch with you if they need to? Yeah, usefyi.com. Uh, you can check out FYI. It helps you find your documents in three clicks or less. And I'd love to try it. Free plan, pretty generous. And then uh, I'm on Twitter at HNHNSHAH. And my product newsletter with my co-founder, Marie, is at producthabits.com. Okay. Now, just say that Twitter handle again, because it broke up a little bit when you were saying it. So it's HN... SHAH, HN Shop. They can even DM me, and yeah. I'm happy to respond to anything. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. You, you heard it here. That's producthabits.com. Or if you want to tweet at Hithan, it's at HNSHAH. That's his Twitter handle. And you can DM him as well. This will be published on our website. You'll be able to access it at productiveinsights.com forward slash growth hyphen hacking. So thanks very much, Ethan, for being on the show. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime soon. It'll be great. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 